You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th Annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Raymond Hilton from Virginia Union University, entitled The Most Horrid Crime Committed Since the Death of the Prince of Glory, Trauma, Treason, Monarchist Persistence and Accounting for the Failure of Ormondite and pre-Ormondite settlements of French Protestants in Ireland. In Raymond's absence, his paper was read by Owen Kinsella. The most hard crime committed since the death of the Prince of Glory. These uncompromising words by Christian worshippers in France, equating the execution of King Charles I to the crucifixion of Christ, expressed in no uncertain terms their feelings of revulsion against the actions of the newly installed British parliamentary regime. The initial, indeed probably most likely surmise, would be be that these French worshippers were Catholics, but that was not the case. These were Huguenots expressing shock at what they saw as slaying the Lord's anointed, an unspeakable atrocity amounting to sacrilege. These sentiments held true in both the lower ranks and the highest level of French Calvinism. The assembled provincial synod of the combined French Reformed churches of Ony, Saint-Anne and Angoumois, Uh, emphasised his pro-monarchial stance and firmly enjoined their congregants not to emulate the English example but to maintain complete loyalty to the French crown. During the course of the ensuing decade, the Commonwealth and Protector did encourage and offer incentives to settle foreign, Calvinist-leaning Protestants in Ireland, not limited to Huguenots but inclusive of Dutch reformists, New England Puritans and Bohemian Calvinists. But the results were negligible, confessional similarities notwithstanding. In fact, there was no substantial French Protestant migration to Ireland until after the Restoration. By contrast, immigration by foreign Protestants was burgeoning in England. This was especially true of influxes from France. As early as the reign of King Edward VI, many Huguenot and Walloon outposts were established and flourished. It was not for lack of trying. Attempts were made throughout the 16th and 17th centuries to populate Ireland with substantial numbers of Huguenots and other continental Protestants. In spite of religious affinities and confrontation by a common foe in Roman Catholicism, the reaction of the greater number of French Calvinists was, at best, studied indifference and ranged as far as emphatic condemnation of the idea. Why then was this so, and what were the off-putting factors? What was not often taken into sufficient consideration was the residual strength of monarchical loyalism that had become ingrained in the French Reformed Church after 1598. As with many religious communities, they had not remained static. These were no longer the embattled Huguenots of the 16th century, who might readily have have adhered to Vindicie contra Tyrannos. There had been an evolution in French Calvinist thinking towards the more moderate outlook, which emphasised loyalty to the monarch as a biblical virtue, as opposed to the militants, who advocated resistance to a monarch who was held to have violated divine law. The years 1598 to 1648, and especially after the Peace of Alais of 1629, had seen the sharp decline of militant Huguenotism. The promulgation of the Edict of Nantes and disastrous consequences of the Rohan War of 1627-1629 to contributed to a more quiescent Huguenot profile and even generated a backlash impelling those of the Reformed faith to prove and emphasise their loyalty. This was evidenced during the years of the Fronde. In fact, it was one of the crucial factors that the majority of Huguenots stood fast in support of King Louis XIV and Cardinal Mazarin. 
These were not, for the most part, the alleged subversives of the 16th century, and most had little regard for republicanism. Further addressing the issues militating against the idea of colonising Ireland, there was the impact of at least three notorious atrocities on the thinking of prospective immigrants. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572, the 1622 Day of Okiwa in Virginia, and the 1641 Irish Uprising. These events would exert their influence into and even beyond the 18th century. The coming of age of the print media, coupled with new innovations in the technology of imagery producing at a reasonable price for a growing popular market, increasingly affected public opinion and moulded, to a greater or often lesser degree of accuracy, ground-level perceptions. Not the least of these media vehicles were the well-publicised atrocity stories. Now the reading public could visualise as well as absorb descriptions of horrific events far away. Atrocity reports, and especially the imagery accompanying them, became part and parcel of informational dissemination, one might even say a respected and influential genre. All three catastrophic events illustrated the common themes of danger lurking nearby, under the surface, surrounding the righteous, and coming out of nowhere to destroy them, of evil being clandestinely plotted and then suddenly massing to strike the city on the hill. The first of these atrocities was the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre of August 24, 1572, which of course was foremost in the minds of Huguenots in so much as they were the victims. Perhaps never before had atrocity victims been so thoroughly publicised. Nearly 50 years later, another horrific incident occurred that would have only served to reinforce the fear of another St. Bartholomew's, and that was a surprise attack by the Native American Powhatan Confederacy on English colonists settling in and around Jamestown, Virginia, on Good Friday, 22nd of March, 1622. Half of the Jamestown colony's population was wiped out during the first two days. This incident likewise had a religious basis. The Powhatan's anger at English attempts to proselytise among their youth and undermine their religion centred around their principal deity, Okiwa, and the threat this posed to their way of life weighed heavily in igniting what developed into the bloody, prolonged Anglo-Powhatan War. The reports of atrocities committed against Protestants coming out of Ireland following the Phelan O'Neill's 1641 uprising would have not only reinforced Huguenot fears, but would certainly have worked a negative effect against Ireland as its allure for settlement. But were attempts made to mitigate the negative factors and promote the planting of non-Anglophonic Protestants in Ireland, apart from the Cromwellian efforts? While it cannot be denied that such colonising schemes and projects were concocted and, even though rarely, actualised during the 16th and the early 17th centuries, they all foundered. The most notable of these were the attempts to settle German lead miners and smelters near Clon Mines in County Wexford, and Sir Henry Sidney's concentration of Flemish weavers in and around Swords, County Dublin. The first project had quite a convoluted history, but in essence it unravelled partly through corruption and mismanagement, partly through personality clashes between the German agents who facilitated the project, Joachim Gundelfinger and Gerhard Harman, and the physician-mathematician Robert Record, who was rather incongruously overseeing operations from a distance and partly through the xenophobia of the Irish Privy Council. The second failed less dramatically, if rather enigmatically. There is simply no mention after and no subsequent trace. We can only speculate that perhaps after Sydney's departure under a cloud, support dwindled and the colony faded. It was one thing to immigrate into a territory perceived as being largely friendly or at least neutral, such as England, the Netherlands, Brandenburg, where there was only the language barrier rather than to Ireland or the New World, where the majority of the population around you might turn on you unawares and in an instant. It was a crucial visitor to France who transformed the situation. The visitor was James Butler, Marquess, later First Duke of Ormond, and exiled former Viceroy of Ireland. 
He had interacted with and been assisted by sympathetic Huguenots who saw him and the Stuarts he supported as being victims of a detestable regicide government. In turn, the Huguenots he encountered impressed Ormond in many respects, their sobriety, their work ethic, entrepreneurial expertise, and their honesty. But probably the preeminent factor was their staunch loyalty, which he believed he could harness to make Ireland a secure base for King Charles II, and thus add some badly needed strength both to the monarchical and Anglican interests which had been so buffeted since 1641. The first concerted, seriously pursued attempt at colonising Huguenots in Ireland was accordingly undertaken in 1662, with Lord Lieutenant Ormond officially returned for his third Vice Regency from 1662 to 1669. This marked the beginning of the first of three distinct Huguenot influxes into Ireland, the early Ormondite colony. It began promisingly, prospered for a few years, but then faltered. But this scenario was not a given, at least at the start, for there were many positive factors pointing to ultimate success. The strongest pillar of these was Ormond's patronage and political oversight. The Huguenot settlement was his project and fit into his overarching plans for transforming Ireland on a continental model and fortifying the Irish economy. To this effect, he had the Irish Parliament enact into law the 1662 Act for encouraging Protestant strangers and others to inhabit Ireland. The statute permitted all foreign Protestants, though aimed primarily at Huguenots, to be granted certain privileges conditional upon their swearing the oaths of supremacy and allegiance. The most significant of these privileges, which were valid for a period of seven years, were automatic naturalisation and consideration on the same basis as natural-born subjects of the Crown, the right to freedom of any town, city or borough where they chose to reside, and the right to enter any trade guild upon payment of a 20 shillings fine and certain tax exemptions. Now, Ormond proactively sent agents to France and perhaps employed agents already in France to sell Huguenots on the idea of coming to Ireland, emphasising and perhaps even embellishing opportunities for establishing linen and cloth manufacturers, productive farmlands, promising to provide reasonably priced building materials, to allow them to continue a Calvinist rite in their worship services, to provide a stipend for any Huguenot minister who agreed to conform to the Church of Ireland. Initial immigration, though not overwhelming, was almost immediate and steady enough over the first three years to convince Ormond that the time was right to authorise a separate French-conformed Anglican church, a gesture that was simultaneously one of paternal benevolence and a vehicle for maintaining a degree of control. One thing the Duke did not want to see happen was the French Calvinists making common cause with Presbyterian dissenters. The formula for setting up what became known as the French Conformed Church of St. Patrick's was modelled on the compromise by which the French Church of the Savoy in London had been established in 1661. The terms of the arrangement allowed the Huguenot worshippers to conduct their services in French and to maintain their consistorial form of church governance and conduct, conduct services at St. Mary's Chapel, also called the Lady Chapel, in St. Patrick's Cathedral. The conditions placed on the French congregation were that their services would not interfere with those held in the cathedral's choir, that burials within the chapel area were at the discretion of the dean and chapter, that the bishops could still use the chapel for episcopal convocations, and that the French congregation must submit in all manner to the Anglican discipline. This last proved to be the most difficult pill for many to swallow. Usage of the Book of Common Prayer, as per the French translation by Jean Durel, pastor at the Savoy, was also mandated. Ormond's appointee as first French church pastor was his own chaplain, Jacques Chiron. Ormond also established industrially based colonies of Huguenots and other foreign Protestants at Chapel Isid, Clonmel, and Carrickenshore, and there seems to have been a Huguenot presence in Waterford. Over the next four to five years, up to 1670, the French population seems to have enjoyed a steady rise and then abruptly dwindled. By 1670, only a handful of families reportedly remained in Dublin 
and the other settlements were likewise scarcely heard from. So what factors contributed to this failure? The success of any mass migration effort is dependent on the strengths and weaknesses of its pull and push factors. And the main contributing component in this instance was that the push factor of harassment and religious discrimination in France was simply not acute enough to offset the discomforts of uprooting oneself and or one's family to make an arduous journey to unfamiliar surroundings, where most of the population around you was hostile and or spoke a different language. The preference for most French Protestants would have been to stay in their homeland. It was only when a difficult situation developed into an intolerable one and the level of persecution had become untenable, such as occurred during the period of 1681 to 1685, beginning with the Poitou, Dragonades, and culminating in the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, that anything near massive immigration and a sustainable Huguenot colonization could begin in earnest. It took the trauma of their betrayal by a monarch they had supported to embark on a course they would otherwise have considered treasonous. There were other contributing elements. Ormond's dismissal from office in 1669, coinciding with the expiration of the 1662 Act's provisions, inadequate or misdirected leadership, and the resurgence of pro-Catholic sentiment in governing circles by 1670, and the perceived danger that that entailed. The removal of Ormond, the colonist protector, must have been highly disturbing, yet in another sense his paternalism had proved self-defeating. He had been so intricately wrapped up in his project and had shepherded it so intensely that when he was removed from the colony, it lacked the resolve to sustain itself effectively. His commitment to Anglicanism, too, had probably proved suffocating for some who preferred to adhere more closely to the ancestral Calvinist forms and looked askance at Anglican ritual and episcopacy. Once Ormond's hand was lifted, around half of the remaining French Protestant families had reverted to Calvinist worship. Even within his own family, circle, Ormond may have had difficulties maintaining control. His daughter-in-law, Lady Ossery, is said by an early secondary source to have allowed non-conforming Huguenots to meet at her residence. Lady Ossery, who was born Emilia van nassau Beververd, was reared the Dutch Reformed faith, which lends this the possibility of credence. The one other individual who was in a position to fill the gap and provide the assurance and needed leadership was French church pastor Jacques Jérôme, but he failed to do so. Jérôme, also called Jérôme by some sources, was by all accounts a brilliant scholar. He was educated at the University of Saumur under the tutelage of Louis Capel and gained some favourable note for his erudite defence of his dissertation, Devoto Paupertatis. He served as minister to the Reformed churches at Le Mans and Fecamp. Somehow he came into the exiled Ormond circle. Departing for England, he became minister for the French churches of Somerset House and the Savoy, and by 1662 had risen to become Ormond's personal chaplain. Unfortunately, despite his undoubted attributes, Jerome, in the end, allowed the courtier, politician and businessman in him to dominate the minister. He was a pluralist of the first order, securing, besides the French church pastorate, eight benefices. Precentor of Waterford Cathedral, treasurer of Lismore, vicar of Chapelizid, prebend of Dunamore, vicar of Mullingar and Rathdonnell, rector of Churchtown and Pierstown, and vicar of Carrick on Shore. He seems to have spent an inordinate amount of time and effort in commercial schemes. He probably invested heavily in promulgating Ormond's plans for an industrial colony at Carrick, where he settled with his family before passing away in 1682, and at Callan, County Kilkenny, where he partnered with a Norwich weaver named Club. Consequently, his absenteeism and neglect of his charge in Dublin, and likely many other places, had negative effects on his congregants' morale. Another factor influencing the fortunes of the early Ormondite colony was the rise and fall of the Catholic Remonstrance of 1661. The Remonstrance's provisions called for an oath of loyalty to the Crown, denouncing the Catholic Church's actions regarding Ireland from 1641 to 1659, and what amounted to, as Ted McCormick recently pointed out, 
applying the Gallican formula to the Catholic Church in Ireland, thus transferring a considerable portion of papal authority to the monarch. For potential Huguenot immigrants to Ireland and other Protestants, this meant a more controlled, less intimidating Catholic Church and consequently a safer environment. However, vehement opposition from elements within the Irish Catholic Church itself and, unsurprisingly, the Holy See, had consigned the remonstrance to a what might have been status by the early 1670s. In 1670, the authority at Dublin Castle had passed to Baron John Barclay of Stratton, whose sympathy for Catholicism reignited a greater assertiveness on the part of the Catholic population and apprehension among Protestants, as noted by a prominent Huguenot then resident in Dublin. When these negative forces are weighed in the balance, the early Ormondite colony, what remnants there were by the 1680s, would have soon died on the vine, so to speak, had not Louis XIV's determination to legally annihilate French Calvinism not made life so onerous for many Huguenot families and propelled the tidal wave of immigration to Ireland that brought into being the later Ormondite settlement. That's the end of the paper. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.